0: we're going to read from verses 25 to 4 chapter into chapter 4 verse uh, 7 let's pray gracious heavenly father there's such at once simplicity in the gospel that even a small child can understand it and respond to it And yet there's such richness and depth that it speaks to every part of human existence. Be pleased to grant, Lord, uh, the graces we need in these uh, moments to hear your word and help the one who's charged now uh, to open it. May you free us from distractions, allow us uh, to be able uh, to hear what you would say to us this morning. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse 25 of the third chapter, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In May of 2018, Nancy and I were driving uh, to serve a church in South Dakota. And during the second day of our journey, uh, in the midst of very, very rural Iowa, Nancy gets a call. And it's our daughter, Lindsay. Uh, She was expecting in just a few weeks' time. And she called in tears because in her appointment had been discovered uh, that uh, the child was actually in danger of not doing well and perhaps not even surviving till birth, and so she was going to be induced. And that meant at the end of a 1,000-mile trip, the very next day, I drove her three hours down to the Omaha airport. And if you've ever been there, it's not really a very big airport, and it takes you down a hallway to TSA. It's a long hallway. All the gates open and close from that airport. And um, as I uh, said goodbye to her and I turned around, I noticed that along the wall was this enormous mural, and it read, Welcome to Flyover Country. It was a badge of honor. And it really... uh, Represents. It, it's just one expression of the division that has seemingly increased uh, in the last decade or two in our country. Uh, there are uh, conflicts between flyover America, forgotten America, and the East Coast coastal elite, uh, or the coastal elites on both shores both shores. And um, those differences in income and the inequalities of those areas are striking. Something as simple as dental care for many people in the country is something they cannot afford. They can't afford a crown to save a tooth. Many places are profoundly underserved uh, in the area of medicine. We've lived in a couple of those areas, and I tell you, you have to drive an hour, sometimes an hour and a half to see somebody qualified uh, to help you with a, with an issue. It's been uh, class warfare, the 1% against the 99%. Racial tensions that we might have thought had been somewhat resolved are actually uh, deeper and have risen more to the surface in the last decade than we had anticipated. And all around the world, the gender divide, which has been there since the very uh, beginning of human history, has been accentuated, uh, but to look to the Middle East and as Afghanistan's in the news were keenly aware uh, that women are not treated with the honor and respect they deserve. And though our own country's come a long way, 150 years ago, a woman could not vote, she could not hold elective office, and she could not own property in this country. And while we've come a long way from there, there's still inequalities in the workplace. Men and women doing exactly the same work are not always compensated uh, in the same way. And it raises a question for us, and perhaps you've thought uh, about this, or perhaps you've even given up on this thought. Is there any way uh, for our nation to come back together? Does the gospel speak to this? Well, it does both directly and indirectly. And here in this passage, as Paul is opening up what it means that we are the children of God, and as he announces to us that through new life in Christ, we are actually adopted into God's family, he shows us uh, how it is that this truth holds up the key uh, for the unity that we long uh, to see. Now, that we're adopted is the highest privilege of the gospel. And if you missed last week, I explored that in some, in some depth. And it's come because Jesus has uh, come. You may wonder, well, what is it about Jesus coming uh, that makes it possible for us to be adopted as his sons? Well, I have a number of friends, and probably you do, and a number of you here have actually adopted children And we can draw some parallels uh, between the process of adoption of a child and being adopted into the family of God. Adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. Adoption is a long, drawn-out process that involves waiting, filling out forms, and more waiting. You might think it might be quick when a parent decides to adopt a child, but it involves a lot. And in a similar way, Paul writes here in verse 4 of chapter 4, God sent His Son when the fullness of time had come. Just at the right moment. God's timing was intentional in several ways. It was the right time religiously. The old pagan religions of Rome and Greek uh, had, well, they'd left a, a great spiritual hunger in people, and all sorts of new religions were arising. And there was a, a void not only in the lives uh, in the Greco Roman world, but also among the Jews, because they were wearied uh, by having centuries of living under the domination of another power, and they longed for their freedom and for the Messiah uh, to come. And it was the right time culturally. Marketplace uh, Greek was a simple, widely spoken language that made trade possible uh, all over the Mediterranean Basin. And it meant that people who otherwise couldn't talk to each other now could. And this doesn't mean that, well, God watched until it seemed like everything was kind of aligning up. And now's the right time to send his son. Now, it's not that the time was ripe. It was that God was sovereignly shaping these events. Uh, this very moment in time, the way a master chef might craft an extraordinary meal, bringing everything together, and the timing, and the temperature, and the spices, and, and the heat to make something that's wonderful. Adoption requires a person who possesses the right qualifications. In order to adopt, you have to undergo extensive screening, background checks, your finances get a look at, people who know you fill out uh, reference forms, and social workers will come to visit you in your home, and then, of course, there's the lawyers. They have to be paid as well. And there are just numerous qualifications that have to be met. And so it was in our adoption by God. Someone had to pay the price to ransom us out of our bondage. Well, who was that? Well, it was Jesus Christ, of course. He was uniquely uh, qualified. Just how? Well, Paul writes, God sent his son. Jesus was fully God. God did not create him. He was the preexistent son, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in dignity, authority, and power. And he alone could and did bear the infinite wrath of God due to us for our sins. And he was fully human as well. And this is Paul's point when he adds, born of a woman. It was essential for Jesus to be fully human, and fully divine to be our substitute. Jesus had a physical body just like ours. He was born in a normal way to poor uh, parents. He, he sweat, he got tired, and he bled just like you and I. And I don't think we should think that he hadn't had a cold or the flu or the measles or the mumps. He would have had all those uh, things. Jesus, Paul tells us, was born under the law. He was born Jewish and lived out all the requirements of the law of Moses. He did it all. He kept it all. And if Jesus hadn't done it all, if he weren't fully righteous, then he could not have redeemed us. And adoption requires one who comes at the right time with the right qualifications and has the right resolve verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. He determined to redeem us. Now, a parent takes the initiative to seek out a child and adopt it. And so it was that it was God's good pleasure to set His affections on us before the creation of the world. Now, in our world, It's not uncommon to glamorize adoption as if the adoptive parents are not only giving a child a life they uh, would not otherwise have, but that the child is sweet and precious and innocent. The Bible is very clear that in our case, the parallel breaks down at just this point. We are neither sweet nor innocent. Now Russell uh, Moore is an adoptive parent and some of you may recognize his name and he uh, develops this picture for us just this way. Imagine for a moment you are adopting a child and as you meet with the social worker in the last stages of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old boy has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things, attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, although she doesn't explain exactly what that means. And then she continues with a little family history. The boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. each of them ended their own lives. Would you want this child? If you brought them home... uh, how would you feel about them playing with their children? Would you be a little nervous when they looked in the kitchen at the knives? Would you leave them alone with your daughter watching uh, TV? Well, and then Morse says, I want to tell you who the problematic 12-year-old boy is. He's you and he's me. That's what the gospel is telling us. Now, I know it may sound like an exaggeration, but when you look at the cross... You see the horror of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ. You see the reality, the truth about us in our sinful fallen state. Jesus determined to redeem us. He died to rescue us. Now, what does this have to do with uh, overcoming the divisions of race and status and class and gender? Well, it's the good news and the bad news of the gospel that levels everybody. We all stand on the same footing before God if we've come uh, to God in faith through Christ. The bad news humbles our pride. And the good news gives us a new identity that, well, it demotes the normal, the ordinary ways uh, that we define our identity. And it creates for us an experience of a new kind of unity. Now, in traditional societies, and we don't live in one, but although some of you may have come from one, you are who you are because of your family, your name, your wealth, your tribe, your people, your race, your nationality, your ethnicity, and you live your life for that group identity. You are expected to make sacrifices uh, to guard that identity. Now, in modern society, which most of us grew up in, and uh, this is the Society of America, you decide who you're going to be. In other words, you create or manufacture your identity based on your choices and accomplishments, your sexual preferences, what groups you associate, your hobbies, uh, your interest, the work you choose. Now, in the traditional uh, society, uh, identity is very confining, and it generates a kind of exclusiveness. It says, my group is better than your group. In a modern one, it has the feel of weightlessness because it's self-chosen. At some level, it's like the plot of a novel and we know it. And so it has to be defended. Psychologically, there's something in us that needs to defend that our choices are the right choices for me. And it creates isolation and uh, boredom. It's, It's rootless. And so... Both the traditional approach and the contemporary approach to finding identity are rooted in and produce pride. And pride tends to lead, especially in the traditional uh, understanding, to conflicts. And in the traditional one, even the shedding of blood. I don't know that the, the contemporary ones are uh, free from conflicts, but it's especially uh, subject to the kind of pride that produces a kind of superficial community. Yes, you spend time with people who share your hobbies, but you have no real unity uh, with them. It simply can't overcome any other divisions. Just think about all the ways that people try to overcome uh, division. There's borders and armies. In fact, the Soviet Union imposed uh, many borders with their armies over people that had nothing in common. The English uh, did this in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, after World War II, trying to make nations out of tribal groups who had nothing in common and hate each other to this uh, day. Um, We do it uh, through education, integration, cross-cultural exchanges, the United Nations, multiculturalism. But none of these has brought people together. In fact, uh, what we have is still, in our world, one group trying to gain advantage over the other. In other words, to gain power over those who would differ from them. It's only the gospel that can break down these walls. And Colin uh, Hansen points out that um, there are really only two options the world has for overcoming disunity. And the church is tempted to actually live out one of these. One perspective says we should celebrate diversity by prioritizing differences in ethnicity, nationality, uh, gender, and increasingly sexual orientation. And this perspective tells us that it's right and good when these various identities are together in community. In other words... A room full of faces that are all the same color feels wrong, maybe even immoral. The second perspective calls us to celebrate uniformity, uh, which means you shouldn't mix people of different groups, especially ethnicities. But it can happen at any level. Uh, there are countries uh, where uh, it is the caste system that separates people. I've been to India, and the caste system is very much at work. And the gospel has its uh, greatest impact among those in the lowest uh, castes. But in a, if you're in a low caste, you cannot climb to an upper class. It doesn't matter how accomplished, capable you are. You are stuck um, it can happen in a political system that demands obedience to the state in all things. When uniformity is considered the highest value, then in a room where people disagree with each other over politics or their view of the world, it feels wrong and immoral to be in the same room. You see, these two perspectives, diversity and uniformity, may seem to be pushing in opposite directions. But their differences obscure one fundamental underlying similarity. And it's more obvious with uniformity that there's an exclusivity going on. The way you get to uniformity is you just push out the people who are not like you. But you know, that works out like this, you know, if you put the wrong uh, sign in your yard or don't go to the right church or associate with people from the wrong caste, you're excluded Uh, from that community. And the same thing happens in the push toward diversity because it's only a certain kind of diversity that's allowed. You can be from a different ethnicity, but you can't disagree on sexual ethics. You can be proud to come from another country, but you can't support the wrong political party. When the church follows either of these patterns... And actually, there are churches that follow each of these uh, patterns, although they usually have nothing to do with each other. It doesn't get noticed by the world. Why? Well, because you don't need to come to church to experience either of these uh, patterns. You can join a protest march or a political party if you want to share ideological zeal. You can join a sports team or a gaming community if you want people uh, to enjoy a pleasure uh, with. You can go down to the coffee shop and uh, join a group of older people who want to gripe, maybe gripe about their health, gripe about the community, gripe about the world's uh, problems. Um, The church is not noticed by the world when it looks like one of these kinds of groups. You see, the church that got noticed in the ancient world was the church that brought together people who don't normally associate with each other, tax collectors and zealots, sinners and Pharisees. That's what made the early church so strange, and some said it turned the world upside down. You see, only the gospel can break these divisions down. The bad news of the gospel destroys our pride because it reveals how helpless and hopeless we are, just as Russell Moore put it with his illustration the 12-year-old boy. And the good news of the gospel that we're gifted with new life and a new identity uh, means that we can be one with people who are unlike us because we have a higher status and identity that we can share in common. You see, the gospel creates a new society, a new race, a new humanity. That's Paul's point in Ephesians uh, 2. And the church in which race, social class, wealth, and gender are demoted, they become secondary, just as our manufactured identities too, which are really just based on our preferences and accomplishments. Being a child of God is the highest privilege a human being can have. It's gifted to us. It's greater than even receiving new life. Now that's not to say there are no longer any distinctions inside the church. It doesn't mean that Greeks have to stop being Greeks, that they have to give up their culture and become Jewish. The gospel does not mean that the rich cultural diversity of the human race must be homogenized. Uh, put in a blender and and made into a smoothie, some gray, bland, uh, new thing. And it can't mean there's no distinctions between male and female in the way we live. If you look at Paul's letters to the Ephesians or Colossians, he shows that he didn't think that oneness in Christ uh, uh, and our being adopted wiped out all the distinctiveness in the duties and practices of different classes cultures, or genders. We don't all become interchangeable, but we are all one. Now, the gospel has social implications, and by this I mean I am a Christian before I am anything else. That is my primary unchanging identity. It's the one part of my identity that can't be lost. I can lose everything else. And this is still true, and it's not devastating, because the most valuable identity will always be mine. And it means that all the barriers that separate people in the world into warring factions come down in Christ, the barrier of culture, neither Jew nor Greek. Cultural divisions have no place in the church of Christ, because people don't need to leave their culture to be accepted by God. And so we should accept them. We should with uh, we should not relate to people thinking one group they have a, a culture or way of doing things that's superior to another. Inside the church, we should associate love and learn from others across racial, racial and cultural uh, barriers. Now, The church hasn't done a very good job of this in many places and many times. And America's not doing really a very good job in the area of race. Most of our churches are very, very divided racially. And it's really a sign of, well, how shackled the gospel has become to our culture And one of the reasons this is so, one of the reasons that the church is not multi-ethnic is because we as individuals aren't living multi-ethnic lives. We don't have meaningful friendships with people who are really different than us. If we did, if we really related to people who were very different than us, it would, well, it would challenge a lot of our pride that our way, our culture, uh, our way of thinking and acting is the only way or even the best way. In God's gracious providence, uh, we moved next door when I was a child to a Chinese family, and uh, John uh, is my uh, friend of the most years. And when John was in high school, he regularly encountered the hatred of white people in my high school because he was Chinese. And um, uh, he, in fact, uh, received a very severe injury uh, to his arm as a result of that uh, hatred. And it's been through our friendship that I've come to see, in part, what life is like uh, for him. And it's still a learning process. Nancy's uh, brother-in-law, Jimmy's, African American, and her eyes through the years have become increasingly open to his experience of life, though he's a university professor. He's encountered at almost every turn in his uh, life some measure of hostility, some form of hatred, The barriers of class, neither slave nor free, the amount of wealth, the status of your family, the kind of work you do, whether you're blue-collar or white-collar, whether you're a tradesman or a professional, what level of education you have, should not extend in the church to shape our relationships. We shouldn't, just like the world does, only associate with people uh, who have our status, the person of meager income should not be made to feel uh, inferior uh, in any way. Uh, we should not resent those who were better off uh, than ourselves. And the gender barrier, Paul refers to it. Neither male nor female. Now, on Paul's day, women were viewed as absolutely inferior to men. In the ancient world is a lot more like Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Than anything you and I have experienced. There's a, a Jewish prayer that scholars often uh, cite uh, when they come to this text, and it goes like this, blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me ignorant or a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. And even today, uh, the application of this principle is controversial. All men and women are equal before God in Christ Jesus. They've all received the Holy Spirit. They're all given gifts by the same Holy Spirit. They are all members of the body of Christ. And they are essential to the body of Christ. If we are to be strong, if we are to grow to maturity, if we are to be the witnesses to Christ and His work as uh, we are called to do. Just as essential as any man And this raises a question. Well, what are the implications of this for society as a whole? Well, the oneness of slave and free in Christ doesn't mean that Paul advocated the abolition of slavery. He calls slaves to serve their masters as if they were serving Christ. Now, he does add in one of his letters, if you can get free, you know, take your freedom by all means. But the implications are just that, they are implications. Paul does not command the slave owner, uh, Philemon, to free his slave, Onesimus, but he does call him his brother. And F.F. F. Bruce uh, makes a note in his commentary there was an Onesimus in that time who became a bishop. And it's entirely possible that Philemon submitted to Onesimus, his slave in the areas of the life of the church. Paul hints at the equality of slave and free, um, but he doesn't call for a slave revolt. No, it took centuries for the gospel uh, to work out the implications. Uh, In Britain, it took Uh, many centuries and a lifetime for uh, William Wilberforce, uh, who was motivated by the gospel uh, to actually legally abolish the slave uh, trade in England. It might seem obvious to us, and especially as we think about the fact that all human beings bear the image of God that no person is property and therefore no one should be a slave, but it was not obvious to many, many people in the 18th 17th, 16th centuries. In the long run, the trueness of our oneness in Christ, because we're adopted, affects the way Christians relate and live in a society. So the freedom of the gospel has to change our attitude toward everything in life. That's why this letter is so radical, because if you understand it in depth, you understand that the gospel changes everything for us. But broader social change is not Paul's immediate concern in his teaching. He wants the gospel to bring down barriers in the Christian community. He wants all these barriers to come down in the church. And it raises this most fundamental question, which living in our time of great division uh, becomes very personal. How can I love people at church that are different than me. How do I love people at church who are different than me? Well, it's possible because the gospel gives us a new life. And it's possible now to relate to people with humility and respect. See, when you live in intimacy with God, realizing that you can only have that intimacy because of the gift of Christ's righteousness... It undermines all your claims to self-righteousness. It undermines all the claims you might have to superiority uh, to another person, not just religiously, but actually in every area, because you begin to see really that everything you have and have ever done is a gift. None of it's because of your work. And that undermines the tendency to compare ourselves with others. And mostly we come off better in those comparisons, don't we? We put them down. That's the primary reason we compare ourselves with others. And because we enjoy communion, the intimacy of prayer, the presence of God, we know that's purely a gift. We didn't earn it. It's not because we were clever and smart that we recognized that the gospel was the message we needed to hear. And so we can actually value others. We can listen and learn from those who are different. We can see that we need each other uh, and that working together uh, to accomplish uh, Christ's goals for us is greater than working alone. That's true of us here. We need each other. If we don't understand that, we just act like, uh, you know, the big toes need to meet over here and, and the left feet over here and, and the, the head's over there and, and, and so on. It's just we'd make a shambles of what the New Testament teaches us about the church. You see, our adoption leads us to see uh, people and accept them the way that Jesus does. And that means that like Jesus, who talked with a Samaritan woman at the well, uh, who was different than him ethnically, racially, religiously, and in gender, and loved her is how we ought to relate to people, especially in the church. Jesus accepted her. He spoke the truth to her. He loved her, and we can do the same. Politics and the pandemic have stressed many congregations to the breaking point. It's a very, very difficult season. And most pastors are burdened by what the church is experiencing. And it might seem easier to look for a church where everyone thinks, votes, and sins in exactly the same way you do. But in fact, it's better for your spiritual growth to relate to people who are different than you, to honor people whose abilities differ from yours, to hope all things in love. To maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and to respect the zealot and the tax collector who sit next to you. See, it's a church like that that grabs the world's attention. It's a church like that that Laurel and PG and Montgomery and Anne Arundel County and Howard County needs. And this is a church like the one to come. God's vision for the church is set out in Revelation 7. And it's this passage I want to read as we move uh, to the table. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, cause our hearts to burn with this vision. Cause us to rise above. Uh, the forces around us, the worldliness around us, and let us uh, model what we see in Jesus, what we see in the early church. For, Lord, we long to see the world turned upside down once again. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.